Welcome to the Huntback Country podcast. This is episode number 401, and our guest is one of you, a listener of the show. Cameron joins us today to tell us about some of the struggles and success that he has had hunting deer in his home state of California. He tells a story of a hunt that came together successfully this past year, and some of the things that he's learned over the course of several years as he's hunted in California and specifically gotten into backpack style hunting. So if you, like me, don't have it on your radar or think you'll ever hunt deer in California, not a problem. There's still a lot to learn from Cameron's story and the knowledge that he shares today. As always, guys, if you have any questions for us or have a guest or topic suggestion, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. We would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the show, it does help us tremendously if you leave a rating or review in whatever podcast app that you are using. If you don't mind, hit pause and do that right now. All right, let's go ahead and dive into this conversation with Cameron. Cameron, welcome to the Hunt Back Country podcast, man. I'm excited to have you today. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You uh, sent over some uh, some images and a story via email that was super cool. Uh, one to skip ahead, I just, <laughs> I just loved one of the photos was like you with your son, which was awesome to see him out there with you. And I have to say, like in that photo, you're, you yourself are sitting there glassing and he is next to you. What little setup do you have him using? Is it real binos or just almost a toy? Because it looks tiny. So they're they're real. They're uh, we've had them for a long time, and they're they're kind of the Walmart special, just little uh, observation uh, binoculars. But he loves them because he sees me with my bino harness walking around. I for a long time I was running a just the the lightest possible little tiny uh, slick tripod. And it's just not not enough, right? So I upgraded to a carbon fiber tripod. And so that's his now. He shoots off his red rider off of it. And I promised him when he was able, we practice gun safety at home. And so he's learning uh, all the, the gun safety rules with his red rider. And I said, when you can cock that thing yourself, then you can come out hunting with me. And uh, I, I was about to go out for a, a scouting trip. And he goes, dad, dad, come here. And we go into the backyard and he had been practicing and he showed me that he could cock his red rider. So he said, I'm coming with you. And so <laughs> loaded up his backpack, brought out his, his, uh, his little binos. I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you can tell in the photo, but, uh, the, the, it's a very custom mounting bracket there. It's a, I think it's a, a, a blue rubber band for, um, uh, asparagus. That's how we mounted it to okay, his tripod. Yeah. He was loving life. It's really cool. <laughs> That's super cool, man. And how old is he? Oh, he's six, uh, almost seven. He'll be seven next month. And I have yeah. a five-year-old daughter that's right about the same. They're, they're both, uh, they spot for each other, uh, uh, plinking around in the backyard with BB guns. Dude, super cool. Well, before we dive into the hunt, uh, just so listeners have some context for who you are, where you're coming from, maybe, you know, a little bit of your hunting experience. Uh, what would you tell us about all that? Uh, so my name's Cameron. I live in uh, Central California. Um, I am... I work in education and so I'm, I'm in a suit and tie most days and uh, dreaming about the woods most of the time as well. And so uh, it's interesting. I listen to your podcast very, very often. I've learned a ton of things from that. Um, but a lot of people don't realize how much public land opportunity there is in California. And so 
I've been hunting public land here for, I don't know, 20 years, probably. Um, mostly uh, upland game. Uh, started with uh, dove and quail and chucker, things like that. I did a little bit of waterfowl. I'm not wonderful at it. Um, and then I got into big game hunting. And and really what I prefer is low odds areas where you're mostly hiking around and enjoying the wilderness. And every once in a while you, you get on something. Um, and so I do uh, uh, deer and bear and uh, get a couple of wild boar each year. And we do uh, predators. I, I actually shot a, a bobcat on the very last day of 2019. Uh, the last day it was legal to shoot a bobcat in California. So I have a big uh, 23 pound bobcat mounted in my uh, living room. Uh, but yeah, just a, a little bit of everything. I just love being out in the woods. Can't can't beat a day in the woods, uh, exploring and, and hanging out with the family and uh, harvesting something when you can. I've talked with guys about hunting California and on public land. Um, in terms of big game, that has mostly been like deer and bear. As you said, like I think you mentioned low odds. One theme that I feel like has come up in the conversations I've had, and I don't I don't have any personal experience hunting California, but low odds and also low density and then sometimes pair that with um i would say overlap between like hunters and just general recreation like hikers etc is that something that you kind of run into in the areas that you hunt in california or is it a bit different where you hunt specifically absolutely and so it i'm hunting over the counter uh area uh, primarily i put in put in for the draw every year but the, the place that I hunt is about a 8% success rate. And I, I, there, there's a, a little bit of a falsehood to that though, right? Because that's counting everyone who bought a tag that's driving the roads and, and is a, a necessarily a road hunter. So where I like to be is kind of kind of like what you guys like to do is, is out as far back as I can, where I get away from the people. And honestly, what drove me to doing that is exactly what you're talking about. I wasn't seeing a whole lot of animals. I was seeing a whole lot more people than animals. I think the thing that actually pushed me over, I was up on a ridge one year uh, for the rifle opener and I'm looking through my binoculars and I see a glint over on the other side of the hill and there is someone looking through their uh, rifle scope at me and because they, they saw movement. I went, you know what? I don't want to be around here if people are pointing their guns at other people, right? And so that's what kind of pushed me into the back country because I wasn't find a whole, finding a whole lot of success with uh, high hunting pressure. And then, yeah, you run into people riding uh, motorcycles and hiking and uh, everyone's usually pretty friendly, but they, they can blow an area out pretty quick if you're if you're near the, the trails and the roads. There's you sent over a bunch of talking points uh, that I'm excited to dive into, but we'll kind of center those or just like set some context with a hunt that you had this past fall um, for deer Give us some context for what that was. And then one thing you said about this hunt that caught my interest um, was essentially it just sounded like the way you described it, it was just kind of a next, called a next level for like a better term hunt for you, just in terms of the approach of it, the logistics of it, the physicality of it, et cetera. So just again, kind of big picture, like what was it about this past fall in this specific hunt um, that really was kind of that next level accomplishment for you? Okay. So yeah, you're, you're totally right now. And, and that's why I, I reached out because, um, I, and I, I think I said something along the lines of this in, in the email that I sent you, but, uh, this was a solo backcountry multi-day backpack hunt. And I found some success and I actually, uh, one tripped everything out. Right. And so that, 
I have done, I think every one of those things. I, so, uh, Mark, I think you're from Missouri. I go back and, and hunt with my sister in Missouri every year. I hunt whitetail on public land out there. Um, and so have the opportunity to harvest a ton of animals and, and, uh, butcher, um, tons and tons of deer out there. Um, uh, we've had some luck out here. Me and, uh, my, my best friend, Lucas, uh, he harvested a bear in this same area, I think 2015 or so. And, um, so we've, we've packed stuff out. But it's different when you're doing all of those things in tandem with being solo and being kind of ultralight backpack and all of those things together. It, there's a lot of uh, points of potential failure, right? And so it's, uh, I know Steve sometimes will say you, you pack your fears. It's hard to go. I'm out here all by myself and I don't have immediate help for anything. And so how do I make sure I have everything I need, but not so much stuff and not so much in my head that I, I can't be successful when I, I, I can't. Um, harvest an animal and, and get it out and um, and be able to to partake in that meat when I get home. I love that. You said, you know, numerous factors of things you had done prior on previous hunting experiences, but combining them all into one is what made this both more of a challenge, but also with the success, more of an accomplishment for you. And that's, that's really cool to me because I can relate to that on, on many levels of you know, some hunts you go into and they're not, you know, they have aspects of difficulty or challenge or something new or something different. Um, and I just love, I appreciate that. And it's like putting another, I don't know, putting another arrow in your quiver. Like this hunt had this unique aspect or this unique challenge. And I learned something from it in this way. And now that's something I have to take with me in the future and you start to do that over the years and over different trips and different species and contexts and what have you. And then sometimes like all of that previous experience and lessons learned come together into kind of this culmination. When that happens, it's super, super cool. So I, I know where you're coming from with the describing your hunt from this year that way. Right. And and don't get me wrong. If I, if, if you get an easy one every once in a while, it's nice too, but it, it sure. means more. And I, I, I sent you a photo of the, the deer. It's a, a little forked horn. Um, and I, over half of the deer taken in this zone are forked horns, right? So it's, it, it, it is a, it's up on my wall next to a 140 class whitetail that I shot in Missouri. Like it's, it's a big deal to me, right? It, it, it matters because, because of all of the components of that hunt and how, um, how good it felt to be able to do all of those things and, and make them tie together. Let's start here then. So again, it, there's a bunch of talking points we can dive into. Let's start with this one. You dealt with heat. Uh, it obviously is California. So pretty, you know, pretty mild climate in general, but what I don't know is, uh, you mentioned season dates and this was a rifle hunt. What, when was this exactly? So this was, um, opener was September 24th, uh, 2022. And, uh, I've been in the habit lately. If I'm going to backpack in, I'll go the morning of the day before the opener and just pack as far out as I can get. And I'm hoping that I wake up on opening morning and all the road hunters are, are pushing, uh, deer into, into my area because I'm so far out. Um, but I, in, in the foothills is a little bit cooler, but I, I actually live in Bakersfield, California. And I, I mean, we get, uh, freezes all through the winter. And then we're in 112, 115 degrees through the summer. We have, we have weeks where the even night temps don't go under 90. So it's, it's, it can be hot around here in the summer. Speaking of previous experiences and new learning and all that was dealing with 
meet in the heat something you had previous experience with or was this hunt maybe partially because it was solo maybe because of how far you were away from the road for example but um how was i know we're skipping way ahead to like yeah we have success but i just let's start here on taking care of meat in the heat what have you learned either previously or on this hunt in particular and what what are maybe some like specific strategies that you used okay so it's not the first time we dealt with it but i i was i was wasn't sure that i was going to be able to get it out in a timely manner so that a lot of forethought went into this because i've been down in in this area before um not quite down in the basin more up on the on the ridges and if we get something we're able to get it back to the truck within a couple of hours um and we usually either uh, we usually bone it all the way out to be honest we bone it all the way out and, and pack it to where we need it to go um and so I've, I've had a little bit of experience with that i always bring an ice, pre-chilled ice chest with uh 40 or 50 pounds of ice in the back in case of a successful hunt um and so i knew i had that at the truck but for where i was going on this trip i thought about okay if i get something and it's not first absolute first thing in the morning i need to get to a shady place I need to be uh, proficient with my butchering technique, um, and I and I decided on going gutless, and I've done gutless just a few times, but not solo and not where time would matter, you know. And so um, I uh, watched a handful of videos. I kind of uh, did some visualization to make sure, okay, I'm going to do a dorsal cut. I'm going to start on one side. I'm going to get uh, the uh, hams off first, the whole the whole rear quarter. I'm going to go up the back strap and then. Uh, I, I can, sometimes I can take or leave a blown out front shoulder. And so I'll save that for, for last. I'll flip it and repeat, right? I, how do I want to prioritize knowing that the clock right might run out on me while I'm trying to do that in real time. And so, um, it, this, the temperature swing while I was down there, it got into the low thirties at night. And so I'd get some frost and condensation in the, in the tent. And then, um, on the, on the day that I actually, uh, harvested this deer, um, it, it was above 80, I think it was 80, 82 or 83 when I, when I actually, uh, uh, shot him. And so I, I, I didn't get to take a whole lot of grip and grin photos. It was, it was crunch time. And so I, uh, drug him into the shade and, and went with the plan. So dorsal cut did, uh, pulled out quarters. I didn't bone him out because it was so warm. I didn't want to expose more of the meat to the air and lose more meat. I thought I could keep it cool enough. And so I know, I know that's kind of a gamble, right? You go, I would love to get it off the bone. So I don't have uh bone rot um, because it's so hot. So I actually use my tripod and it's definitely not rated for this, but I put my tripod all the way up, pulled off a quarter, put it in a bag, hung it up and let some air start flowing as I'm working through that process and uh, felt it was in a good cool shady spot. Uh, I skinned out the head, pulled the bottom jaw, pulled the tongue out, got as much as I could off of the the whole head and um i was ready to go and so i i was about maybe three quarters of a mile from camp but camp was not quite in the direction that i would be leaving and so i i made a game time decision to go i'm going to skip camp for a second it's going to get warm i think i think the shot was 9 15 or so and it's only going to get hotter to the middle of the day I'm not going to make it out in the heat of the day. It's too hot to hike out on that uh, south facing um, uh, slope. And so what I decided to do, and and honestly, I think uh, this was 
from Steve's recommendation on one, on one of your podcasts was you're going to get a drastic temperature drop if you can find some moving water that's in the shade. So I packed to a stream that I'm going to have to cross to climb out of this basin and it felt much cooler. And so I tried to find a spot that was shady now, but also would be shady in a couple of hours. And I set up my tripod in the water and I hung that meat maybe a foot off the water and just tried to let that cool breeze cool it off, separated everything out as much as I could. Um, and uh, I went back to camp. And so, I, and I waited until, I, I mean, shot it at 9.15 or something. I think I got back to that meat uh, with my pack camped up or my, my uh, camp packed up, ready to go at, I don't know, 5.30 PM or something. So I let it sit. So I definitely came in, into that uh, uh, green patch, uh, wondering if a, a bear or a mountain lion got to it before I had, but uh, everything was clear. My only my only big hiccup was I didn't wrap the skull well enough with a um, with a game bag. And so there was a colony of meat bees already setting up shop inside the skull. So I had to fight them for my skull for a little while before I was able to, to pack up and head out. Yeah, great stuff in there. I mean, just knowing that strategy ahead of time of exactly how you're going to break it down and then knowing where to get it to, to cool it, um, having all that forethought is such an advantage when, as you said, like time is of the essence. And when you don't have those plans, I think a lot of times, the and this can apply to much more than meat care, but the more you pre-plan anything, then when you feel the like the pressure, then it's just like a matter of executing the plan. You already have the plan versus finding yourself in a situation where now you're feeling pressure, you're questioning decisions, you're undecisive, things like that. So a great example. 100%. And I... What I love, I mean, I, I, like I said, I, I, I work in education, right? And so what I love about listening to experts like you on the podcast is I got to learn that from listening to someone who's probably screwed it up before and say, no, don't do it this way, do it this way. So I get the benefit of not wasting a harvest that it comes, comes very uh, hard in California um, because someone else has done that before and uh, was willing to share their experience and, and some of their uh, troubles. And it it's just a cool thing to not have to learn everything on your own, right? Being able to go, mm -hmm. okay, there's a lot of unknowns and I, I, I there's many to deal with, but there's a few that I can trust experts that they did it this way. And I'm going to, I'm going to model that and see if it works for me. Right. So I'm, I'm leaning into the success already, even not having had to do that in the past. I think that's cool. So you get to meet in the Creek, you go back to camp. At what point did you um, pack up camp, get to the meet and like actually do your hike out. So it, it's funny. I, uh, I, I, it's embarrassing to say, but I got back to camp and I'm going, man, that pack was heavy just with the meat in it. And I'm looking at my camp and my, my, I, I have made some, uh, wonderful decisions based on your recommendations to lighten up my, my, uh, camp setup. But I was, I had that, that thought in the back of my head going, do I really need to bring all the food that I have out with me? Do I, do I really need this tent? Can this tent stay out? I'm, I'm thinking about what I leave, but I know I'm not going to come back anytime soon. And I don't want to um, litter and, and leave this stuff down there. And so uh, I packed up camp, I sat in the shade. I, uh, oh, and I, I'll probably say this again, but the, the biggest pro tip I think I've ever heard uh, from, from you and Steve is those salt tabs. 
I, I don't really like the mixed stuff. I don't like the flavor of the electrolyte powders. And I, I cramp pretty good usually. I started doing those salt tabs exclusively maybe two years ago and I've had zero issues at all. And so uh, I get back to camp and I, uh, I take some salt tabs in preparation for my hike out. I actually uh, uh, pulled out a Nalgene and did some, uh, I'll say, uh, mountain foam rolling. And so I'm like, hey, I'm going to need yeah. my legs out of here. And so it did some some breathing and tried to calm my nerves to go, all right, it's going to be a, a heavy pack out and I'm, I'm only doing it once. Um and trying to visualize what that's going to look like on my way out. And so I packed up camp and uh, got back to uh, the hanging meat at probably like, I think five or five 30. And then the, the, the stream that I had to cross where I was hanging the meat is right at the base of the climb. So I was a big flat rock. I set up my pack. I got all the meat on that. There it was tall enough that I could set up my pack and just put it right on my back from there. And I didn't take it off again until I got uh, to the upper road. So I, I think I was hunting um, about 47, 4,800 feet. And uh, I, I was um, uh, upwards of, of 6,300 uh, up at the trail. Okay. Did you consider, I know you talked about like, do I need to pack all this out? And you talked about leaving some things behind potentially for a period of time, but did you consider doing just two trips in general or was that, not really on the table. Yeah, I it it wasn't on the table for me because I don't think I could have done it. I that's a, that is a just uh, like physically I, the double miles. Yeah, I I in that moment I couldn't have done the double miles. I so here here was my plan B, right? My plan B was take everything, hike until you can't hike anymore, and then dump everything. Like so, if at the bare minimum, I have walked maybe a third of a mile, maybe a little bit farther from camp to where the meat was. Um, and so getting it all, like I, I'm already made, I'm already making progress. I got there. If I can get halfway up that climb and dump a bunch of stuff, then I might be able to double back to there, but I, I'm not going to start my, the freshest I'll ever be is, is right that second. So I want to get everything as far as I can. And then, uh, I, I could have shuttled it a little bit if I needed to, I probably wouldn't have left it all the way. I probably would have moved everything 500, like 500 yards came back and, and kind of, uh, leapfrogged the rest of it if I had to. So how did the pack out go then? Do you have this, like, it sounds like a somewhat intimidating, um, you know, pack out ahead of you with all this weight and camp and everything, as you said, you're so low and all that. Um, yeah. How did it actually go? Uh, so I, I, um, maybe four years ago. And again, from, from advice from your podcast, I, I upgraded to a, uh, uh, internal frame pack. That's about five pounds. And so, uh, my pack was doing really good. I was feeling good about that. It wasn't feeling really uh, heavy to start with. Um, and I think the key for me, and I every once in a while, I'll bring uh, a trekking pole. I hardly ever bring two trekking poles. Um, and just hearing the repetition over and over of why that's been helpful to you guys, um, it, it, uh, non-negotiable. So I, I brought both with me and I was singing your guys's praises on the hike out because it really makes a difference when just even if you need to stop and like kind of static stretch a little bit you don't have to sit down you don't have to take your pack off i was able to kind of lean in on my sticks and stretch my back out and stretch my legs out and, and keep moving and i didn't have to take my pack off which was uh huge and so uh i just knew i was going to get to the top and i'm really happy i decided on the timing because it started to cool off and 
I, I don't think I would have made it in the heat of the day. It was probably 90 degrees in the sun during the day. And so um, when I got to the meet, the meat was shaded, but the trail still had some sun on it. But as I started climbing, I don't think I was ever in the sun. It was, it was kind of going over the horizon. So I, I got to the trail in the dark uh, via headlamp. And um, I don't, I don't think I said this part, but I, I drove out when I, when I went out to the spot, I drove till you couldn't drive anymore. Some down trees. I parked, I have a, a an e-bike that uh, that'll do flatland pretty good. So I rode about three miles out on the, on a, on a dirt road that's blocked because of some trees. So I got to as far as I could go, dumped my e-bike and then hiked in uh, uh, just about two miles to where I was at camp. And so just like the pre-planning for, for taking care of the meat, a lot of things have to go right in reverse. Right. And so I, I made that hike out and I see my e-bike there and I'm like, okay, I'm hoping the tires aren't flat. I'm hoping I have the key still. I'm hoping it turns on and all that worked out. And then I had that same, I had to ride uh, the a few miles back with 85 pounds on my back, um, nice and slow to get to the vehicle. And I remember, I think it's 11 o'clock at night, but at that point, and I'm sitting in front of the vehicle going, man, I hope I didn't leave the lights on or the door open or the dome line on or something. Cause I, I parked in the day and I, pressed the button on the remote and it went chirp, chirp. And I was like, Oh, thank God. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> right. And I, and you, I'm sure you've had the same experience. I had a, uh, I think I had a rockstar energy drink in the ice chest and I cracked it open. And I'm like, how amazing is ice? This is, I'm, I'm having right. a cold drink. This is like, you appreciate all the things that you take for granted because you just finished something that is, is difficult. So it was, yeah, it's a, a lot of things have to go right. And that takes the pre-planning on the front end to not miss a step. Right. Because if I, like you said, if I didn't, if I didn't know that I would be proficient with the gutless method, I could have screwed that up and lost all that meat right that second. If I didn't plan how to get it to cooler weather, I could have got all the meat off, but lost it there. If I didn't plan on how I'm going to pack it out, I, there's there's just so many off ramps where you would have went, well, I, nothing else could have happened. I'm sorry. It, it didn't work again. Right. But a lot of things have to go right in any successful hunt to to make it worthwhile and to, to have success at the end, especially a backcountry. Yeah, absolutely. So I know we just focused very much on the, the end of the hunt, the success, the meat care, the pack out to back up. One thing you, you mentioned already in this conversation about your strategy for kind of packing in before opening day. And then was also um, something that you mentioned in your email was essentially how you, have learned to use road hunting pressure to your advantage. So like, let's back way up and talk about that, whether that you also want to tie that into preseason scouting or really just what you've learned about, you know, and this can apply to different contexts. Let's obviously use your example, but when there's pressure, when there's lower animal densities, um, things like that, what have you learned and like, what are some of the specific um, ways that you use that to your advantage? Sure. So the the first thing I'll say is, and I, again, advice from uh, from from you on your show is, I, I use Onyx religiously, and I and I plot a lot of things that maybe aren't just animals, but sign or sheds or uh, deadheads or think things that I go. I feel like there's animals here. Or if I run into something, I, oh, I didn't know there was water back here. So I'm doing a lot of that all the time. Um, but the first thing I did is. 
I I look where all the road accesses are, and I try to find the spot farthest away from all of them. Right? There's a, the the joke: how how far can you walk in the woods halfway? Because then you'll be walking out. So I think sometimes people are, are are a little overzealous, and they go, "I want to go so so deep." Well, if you haven't checked, you may run into another campground or another road, and and you're you're losing some of that efficiency. So the way that I found this place in the first place was doing that going, Hey, I want to look at road access. Where is the nastiest spot that no one wants to go? This is one of those places that I've had friends here and go, Oh man, you, you shot a deer, you shot a, a, a bear there. Or you and Lukai shot a bear. Uh, what, where is it? And I'm like, I'll, where, where's your onyx? I'll, I'll share this pin with you. You're probably not going to want to go down there. Right. It's, it's one of those places that is overlooked because it's, it's difficult and it's, it's not a, a fun trip. So that's, that's the first part. And again, I, I learned that from, from you and some, some folks you've had on your show. The next thing is when I start running into people, I don't just leave, right? You Sometimes you go to a trailhead and you go, man, there's a bunch of trucks out here. What am I going to do? I'm just going to go somewhere else. Um, I, I shot a public land uh, turkey in this way a couple of years ago. First day hunting turkey ever. I, I heard, I had the kids up there and we were practicing turkey calls and we heard a response. I went, oh, I didn't know there was a turkey down here. And so I showed up the the night before and I saw some folks parked there, actually a big group of folks parked there. And I did it didn't dissuade me from going in. I just went in really, really far. I went in three miles, kind of uh, looped around the back. And the morning of the hunt, they're up and they're loud and they're coming in my direction. And so are the turkeys, right? And so I I feel like you can use that, that uh, mindset to use pressure to your advantage. I've seen it happen in real life uh, just here recently. I think two years ago, it it could have been when Lucas shot that, um, that bear, maybe it was three years ago. Anyways, we were up on this ridge down in this basin and I saw four deer pass by, but at at a far distance, maybe four, four fifty. And I, okay, I can't tell if any of those are legal. One of them was at least a spike buck, but I can't tell if he has a fork. And they kind of pass and I go, man, they're they're going into the chaparral. I'm not going to be able to see them again. And probably 20 minutes goes by and two dirt bikers come down the trail. And those, those deer all ran back at 80 yards right in front of me. None of them were legal, but that I'm like, see, that it's working. That's, that is exactly what I'm hoping for. If we're on the far side of pressure, either we're not going to experience pressure and then we're just hunting normally, or if there is pressure coming from that side, we're going to get a, a a small percentage of push in our direction. So it, it can't hurt us. It's only going to help us if pressure is coming from the opposite side. And we got in there quiet and, um, and uh, playing the wind correctly. We're, we're unnoticed. Yeah. That's one thing I, not just in terms of pressure in general, but one thing I've come to force myself to do is I think many of us tend to, whether we're e-scouting or what have you, like look at country and we immediately go to things like what's the efficient way to cover this country or to access this point or what have you. And sometimes that's perfectly fine, but clearly if that's kind of what we see is a good plan, then that's probably what a lot of other people see as a good plan, as a good plan as well. And so I just have to sometimes force myself to, allow myself to go through that, like, and look at, you know, oh, this would be a good approach. This would be a good strategy. This would be a good spot. But then at the same time go, 
come back to this with fresh eyes and just go, what did I just overlook? So I just made this plan and it makes sense for all these reasons and here's why. But maybe that's what makes sense to everybody. Maybe that's what more people are doing. So if I look at the opposite of that, or if I shift my perspective, a theoretical 180 degrees, like what am I overlooking and not just seen as like the default quote unquote good plan? Um, And sometimes that's given me a really helpful perspective on finding little spots or areas that I just flat out would have otherwise overlooked. I completely agree, Mark. Yeah, that's it, it's funny. I've, I've had days like that where you read the books and you listen to the podcast and you go, well, when it's hot down here, we're going to find deer at 8,500 feet. And I have spent a week solo backpacking and not seen a deer to save my life. And I'm driving back home and it's 104. And I see a, a big four point buck uh, laying under a tree and I go, he's not reading the same book that I'm reading. He should be up okay. on the now right and it's so yeah they 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 make liars out of you really easily but a lot of that has to do with what you're saying about hunting pressure it's if everyone is doing that then it's not that advantageous and you might have to to change your approach to say where is that little honey hole that it's overlooked and oftentimes in my experience it's the thing that's farthest away or the roughest country so my sister melissa is a um a, a avid hunter in missouri and i when i go see her um we've we've killed more public land, big bucks that we should not even see because we hunt like Western hunters, right? We go, we pass a bunch of people who are hundred yards or 200 yards from the parking lot. And they're sitting in a chair out in the field, watching the edge. And there's, there's a, a certain public land property that we've, I think we've shot 15 or 20 bucks out of. And we walk, we go out two hours early. We walk all the way to the back of the property. We follow the fence line. We cross water. And you know what? They're there because no one wants to do that. They want they want to shoot that buck every four or five years from a hundred yards from the from the um, parking lot. And we'll get one every year. We have to haul it a mile and a half back in. But it, it, you're totally right. You have to go. Yes, that is the right habitat. They would love that. Except for there's uh, hunters in in blaze orange every couple hundred yards around this field. Can you still find success in that area? Of course you can. But you got to think of it differently, just like you described. This is a shift, but one of the talking points you sent over uh, really caught my attention. You said why great gear and going light is more important for the weekend warrior. So what did you mean by that? What are some examples from your personal experience of uh, maybe some changes you've made, for example? So I the the biggest one that I'll tell you, and it 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 hurts me to to buy expensive gear, right? It's this is just a hobby and the money's not worth it. And I know I like it, but I shouldn't spend it. I don't, I don't, I'm not in the field enough days a year. Um, and my, my wife, Crystal is always really good. She goes, you're going to use it, get it. Like it, it will save you time while you're out there and make your time more efficient. So I used to not hunt with binoculars. I had a, a Walmart special and I went, why do people use these? It's not really helping me. I don't understand it. And I went on a whitetail hunt and uh, a good friend of mine, Ryan, let me borrow his uh, Zeiss um, binoculars. And there was a bucket a long distance in the brush. I pulled up, I saw that he was legal and I harvested it, right? So it, it, it went really quickly and I didn't miss the opportunity. And so I got a, um, uh, Crystal actually bought me a pair of uh, Zeiss Terra EDs, uh, the 10 by 42s. And I love those and I used them 
but I've gone through a couple different range finders and I had a couple of times where I'm like, I see it and then I pull out my range finder, but I can't range it right. And I, I'm, there's a bunch of stuff going on and I am having a hard time getting my routine to where, how do I look through my binoculars, then my range finder, and then get on the rifle and take a shot, right? I'm, I'm missing opportunities that way. And so um, I've listened to some different reviews and uh, I, I know uh, Steve's talked about them and you've talked about them. And so I ended up getting uh, the the Suaro um, uh, range finding binoculars. And that has been an absolute game changer for me. It The amount that I spent on those to upgrade has probably saved me that in just fuel alone, right? You, you Going out and being able to very efficiently range something, dial and shoot. And I'm, I'm shooting more uh, wild hogs quicker and uh, more efficiently. Just it's, things are happening uh, a lot more often than they, than they were without it. Right. And so it's, it's, you're able to capitalize on uh, opportunities that wouldn't have been before. There's been times where I see a legal buck and I go, can't, you can't quite get into the groove and make it happen. And you go, okay, well, I saw one and that's, that's a good sign, but it wasn't an opportunity with good gear. You're able to make those opportunities. And so uh, that just huge, the, the range finding binoculars have been such a big help, uh, such a, such a big help. And so uh, worth every penny for those. Um, I, I recently upgraded actually before this hunt for this hunt, because I'm um, trying to go as light as I can. Uh, I I've been shooting a, uh, I think a $300 big five, um, Savage 30-06 for years and years and years and years. And I have shot all kinds of deer with that, that rifle. There's nothing wrong with that rifle at all. Um, but I wanted something that was a little flatter shooting. If I couldn't get a solid range, I could kind of Kentucky windage and, and, and figure it out. And I also wanted something that was lighter to pack around, not eight, nine, 10 pounds. And so I went with a, um, uh, Christensen Arms uh, Ridgeline FFT. I think scope and and rings and I, I put a, a Salmon River Solutions Arca uh, plate on the bottom, and I, I think I'm at seven pounds three ounces all set up, and that thing just shoulders quickly and it it's beautiful to carry around even if you're not you're not shooting um, all the time right you you forget it's on your pack, and so those were the two big ticket items. Um, but not just, just the things that you're using there. Like I, I upgraded to, um, a quilt and I don't think I would have ever done that without talking to you guys or hearing from you guys, because I, there is comfort in a sleeping bag and a big tent and all those things. I remember, uh, listening to a podcast and I think, I think I forget which one, but Steve said, well, yeah, if you're hunting, I mean, you're not, you're not just there for backpacking, right? So you don't, it's not all about the accoutrement for that. If you're hunting, you want your sleep system, your tent and your pad and your um, and your uh, bag to be under five pounds. And I paused and I walked into the garage and I pulled out my tent and my big Agnes three person tent was like six and a half pounds. I was like, oh, man, I I, I blew my budget just with the, <laughs> just the tent. <laughs> and then I, I was running the, the big Agnes 15 degree encampment and that's three and a half pounds and uh, a, a, a ultralight pad. And so I have all this stuff. I'm carrying 12 pounds of, of gear just to sleep, right? And so being able to have the confidence to go, what do I actually need? I, I got the Nemo Siren um, quilt and I think it's just over a pound. 
Uh, I got um, the climate ultralight insulated pad and all of the conversations you guys have had about how, how the R rating works. And, and that was uh, so helpful because in my mind, before I go, well, I just need a, a heavier, bigger sleeping bag because I'm getting cold when it was hundred percent the pad that I was using. Right. And so I was able to, to learn that from you guys, but now um, with my, I had the, the Nemo spike uh, ultralight. I think it's a, just over a pound as well. So my, my sleeping bag, my pad and my um, tent, I'm four pounds on the dot. Right. And so I can take that anywhere. I can, I can leave that in my pack. I can use that for day hunts in case I want it. It's, it's a game changer to, to get down to four pounds and why that matters to me as the weekend warrior is I'm not doing this every single day. I think I, when I, when I uh, emailed you, Steve, I said, or I, when I emailed you, uh, Mark, I said, uh, I know you and Steve uh, talk about uh, thousands of feet of vertical elevation gain. Uh, the, the 1300 feet w- was plenty for me. Right. And so I, I, I don't do this all the time. Um, and so I want to add some efficiency with my gear, but I also want to add a little bit of uh, grace for myself to say, I don't get a chance to do this all the time. And so getting good gear, I, I can trust it. I can trust it day in and day out. If I don't use it for three or four months, I know it's still going to be good. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot of value in my mind, even more so for someone who's using it all the time, because you might get a chance to bust something up and say, I love it or I hate it, or I can get a different one because you're in the field more often. I need my stuff to work every single day. And so uh, upgrading to the tripod that I got, uh, just, there's a, there's a lot of different things that I've, uh, chosen to upgrade based on recommendations. Um, and it's, it's been a a complete game changer for me. It's a great point when you actually have limited opportunity to get out and hunt, but that actually creates a situation where it's more important that you have your gear dialed because you don't have the opportunity to waste. Like you don't have time. You don't have as many opportunities to go out and be like, oh, well, that didn't work, right? Um, You know, you run into issues when it's like you only have these small amount of days per year and you're you're losing very important, valuable time. It also makes it harder when you don't have as much time in the field to then be able to like compare different options and test this and that and the other thing. So then you do have to like pair that with some good research and like make more informed, better decisions, hopefully from some source you can trust uh, because again, those days are critical and your opportunity to do a bunch of different testing and tinkering and experimenting is, you know, very limited. Yeah, I completely agree. Well, and, and what I think is important to note is it doesn't have to be expensive stuff. It just has to be the right tool for the job. Right. And so I, and I've heard you both say this on the podcast as well. Like the, I, I run sick gear. I love it. I've, I've had it for 10 plus years and that you just cannot break that stuff. I absolutely love it. I listened to your recent podcast, uh, with Sitka and I'm thinking about getting a, a, a mid-layer, uh, like active insulation piece based on your recommendation, but I've never got the gloves. I go, I $160 for gloves and I've tried them on and they're not that warm. And I always go back to the rag wool gloves that I like that the, they're like mittens that the, they're fingerless, but then they flip over the top yep. and I, because I, you can trash them and get them wet and throw them away and buy another pair for six or seven bucks. And I've always preferred those. And it's, it's nice as someone who doesn't get to do it all the time to hear Steve go, Oh yeah. Raggle gloves are the way to go. There's, there's times to have other insulated gloves, but like he probably likes them just as much as I do. And so that's uh, reinforcing for someone who doesn't get to use it all the time. Same thing with, I, I have two of the black diamond uh, spot headlamps 
and I have one that has the single button and one that has the double button. And uh, I, I like them both uh, just fine, but I've heard you guys talk about the difference between knowing the commands <laughs> with a single button to make it work right. And I go, oh, that's so funny. I have that same issue. But if you guys are using that headlamp, I'm using that same headlamp. I'm not going to go waste money on a way more expensive headlamp that, that I don't need because people that are using it all the time uh, are having success with that same thing. So again, it's not, it's, it's not necessarily expensive upgrade stuff. It's just the right tool for the right job. Um, this year, I, I also upgraded some boots and I've been running um, some like Merrill Moabs for a long, long time. They just wear out really quickly. They're comfy. They're comfy on day one. Don't get me wrong. But uh, I, I uh, tore my ACL and I needed something that I, I was having some issues with rehab. And so I needed something that gave me a little more structure for my feet. And I uh, ended up with the crispy Laponia twos. And uh, after often trying to find taller boots that are insulated and they're a couple of pounds a piece. And then I feel like I'm walking in mud and hearing you guys talk about like, you know, I run trail runners out there or I'm running ultralight shoes or I'm running, like you don't need insulation and here's why I, I'm starting to, to see, or I, I, I finally saw this last year, like, yeah, maybe there's some truth to that. And I run those uh, crispies if it's freezing cold or if it's 110 and they feel the same for all of the reasons that I think you just recently talked about this, about uh, the, sometimes the, the thin slate makes you sweat and then your sweat makes your, your feet cold and all that type of stuff. Right. So mm -hmm. there's, again, we're going back to just hearing it from the experts and going, I'm going to try that on for size and see if that works for me. And I I've seen a lot of that, um, uh, in, in your, your podcast, hearing from people who have been that been there, done that, bought the t-shirt and have some, uh, amazing recommendations. One, another one, I think that, that you recommended is that, that DMT, uh, diafold sharpener. Mm -hmm. I keep that in my kill kit now. And I, uh, uh, against, uh, your guys' recommendations, I, I do, um, uh, use a Havilon. I'm just super careful with it. And I, and I, uh, I understand the gravity now of how bad that could be in the backwoods, but I love it. But I, I'll use that uh, sharpener to touch up the Havilon so I don't have to switch blades in the field. That's been great. And I always know that even if I, I usually have a pocket knife on me as well, that I have some redundancy, but I'm not carrying a bunch of extra stuff and I can sharpen whatever I need to sharpen with that. And um, it, it's been great, especially if I'm trying to cape something out or, or uh, um, uh, do some some fine work with that. Yeah, that's cool. It's interesting just as you're talking about gear and it doesn't have to be expensive and things like that is anymore when I get a chance to talk with someone and I don't necessarily mean this for the podcast, but talk with other hunters who I know are in the field a lot, who I respect, et cetera. A lot of times when it comes to gear, people want to like, oh, what's new? Like, what's your favorite piece of new gear? What have you? And my question <laughs> tends to be these days realizing what's your oldest piece of gear? Like, what are you still yes. using that you were using, you know, X years ago? Because that's the thing you stuck with for a very good reason. And I, I'm much more interested in that than I am. What's the coolest, flashiest thing that you tried new this year? Like, I want to know what you stuck with for a long time. Um, yeah. And then the same thing, like on that point of it doesn't have to be expensive. And it made me think of you mentioning the gloves is... If I know someone, especially, you know, quote unquote in the industry who has access to a lot of gear, whether that's for free or discounts or what have you, when I see them using something very inexpensive, 
I'm much more interested as well. Because again, this person probably has the opportunity to use the $160 gloves or get the $160 gloves, you know, for cheaper or what have you. But if they're still using the $15 or $20 gloves just to make stuff up, there's a reason for it, right? And so that's just one thing to throw out there to listeners. It's like the new stuff's fun and flashy and I like to talk about it and it's cool to see what technology's doing and everything else. But also look at just what it, where's the longevity and where's the value, especially if it's, again, coming from someone who has an opportunity to use a lot of different things. See, and I, I love that you're saying that because it's it, it's when you get a chance to use some of that stuff. Like for instance, I absolutely love the stoic wool um, underwear base layer and then their Arctic um, wool um, like long johns, right? And I, I've had the same pair of long johns for 12 years or something. And some of my other gear has been updated, but people will go, why do, why do you still use that stuff? I go, well, I'll stop using it when it stops working. This is like, this is exactly what I need because if I happen to sweat through it and I'm hiking, I can wear that under my clothes, and not have an issue, but also when it's cold, I don't feel the cold. Right. So it, it, it's almost like you have to take yourself away from, like you said, what's the new cool thing and go, do I have a need in that area or is my need being met? If I, if my need is being met in the base layer, I, yeah, I kind of want to know if there's something way better but I don't have an issue with that. Why, why would I mess with that? That's a, that's a good thing. I'm going to keep it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're probably wasting, you know, mental energy, time and money to chase an improvement that you don't actually have a need for. Exactly. Exactly. You know, a topic that comes up a lot. You mentioned it again in the talking points is staying in the game when you're not seeing animals. So with your experience hunting in lower population densities, just, lower percentage of success areas. How do you do that? So <clears throat> this was true on this hunt. And I, I don't think I've, I've said this, I've been hunting this area for quite some time, but this basin infrequently. And so last year um, in 2021, I, I had been scouting really good in this area. We went out for archery season and saw some big deer, but out of range, I didn't have enough days to come back to. And I go, Oh, I am going to, knock something down come rifle season. And so uh, I I went down and uh, set a camera and uh, in this area just to see what time they're passing through. And I, you have to go back down there and get it, right? It's not on a cell camera or anything, but I set a camera down there. And while I'm setting a camera with a buddy, I see a legal buck like hundred yards away. I'm like, okay, we're in the right spot. We're going to see some deer. We pull out of there and I, I am planning on coming back, I think in a week and a half or two weeks when, uh, when rifle season opens and a few days before rifle season, we get a really, really, really big fire, which happens in California so much. In fact, that this fire near my area, what the, the, um, closure area touched the Northern complex fire. So I, I called, uh, fishing game and I called the state. And I said, I'm a public land hunter. Tell me where I can hunt within a hundred, nothing. Everything is closed. There was, there were, so we set it out. I I went and uh, we went to a a buddy's ranch and and hunted coyotes uh, two years ago on the, on the deer opener instead. Um, But everything was closed. And so all the way up until it snowed and they get feet and feet and feet of snow there. And so the next um, spring I show up there and hike down there to pull my camera. And there are, 
legal bucks walking by that camera on daylight on opening day. Right. And so you go, Oh man, they were there. And I, and I, we called it, we were, we knew what was going on down there, but with the fire pressure, you don't know how much of that pushed animals. There's, there's a lot of other factors. And so part of it is I have a few key memories or uh, pieces of evidence that there are deer in that area. They're, they're not going to be gone forever. They, they might not be where I think they're going to be, but they're going to be in that basin somewhere they like that basin. So part of that is just knowing that even if I don't see them, they're there. Well, when I went in on the first day, I, I usually play the first day as conservative as possible. And so get up before the sun comes up. I don't do any, I don't cook anything in the morning, although I, I love me some coffee. I don't even, I don't warm up anything up. I, if, if I'm out there to hunt, uh, I wake up before the sun comes up. I don't eat breakfast. I pack up and I get to where I want to be. And I wait until after that, that uh, first morning rise to, to make coffee or eat kind of in my spot. So I got to kind of an, an, an overlooked spot where I've been before. I didn't see movement. I didn't see a, a living thing at all. Right. Which is kind of discouraging when you know they've been in that area before and it's easy to get distracted or to change your game plan or to pack up all. That's a good excuse to go home and see your family, right? Hey, I'm missing my kids. I'm missing my wife. Maybe, maybe this isn't the year I'm going to go home. I'm planning to be there for five days, but I didn't. I stuck it out. And midday, I slowly creeped into where I was expecting to see deer looking for sign. And I confirmed that there is, they're not moving through there at all. They're the, the normal pathways that I've seen them in the past. I don't see any tracks. I don't see any sign. They're not there. And I take that as a positive because if you know they're in this track of, of land, it's just as valuable in my opinion to know where they're not as to know where they are, right? So I go, perfect. I'm looking at Onyx and I go, forget this whole side that they're not here. That helps me figure out where I'm going to be tomorrow. So I moved to a different spot. Uh, for the for the evening, and I said, okay, I, I I think I know a plan for the morning. Uh, the the wind is is uh, uh, going to be blowing from the northwest, and so I'm going to leave camp. I'm going to go around this pinnacle, take a big button hook, add add maybe three quarters of a mile to my hike. I'm gonna there's a uh, a cow trail down there, so I can be nice and quiet. I'm gonna follow this cow trail up. I'm gonna get to this rise. And I'm going to sit on this rise and check this other meadow that I've seen deer in before. Because if they're not here, they're either here or here. Right? I'm, I'm kind of narrowing it down. And um, doing that for the first couple of days, you start to second guess yourself. You go, am I spooking everything? Am I am I uh, wind bumping things and not knowing it? And it's really that self-talk to go, well, if you don't see them climbing out of the basin. They're probably still in here. I know there are deer in here but I, I can't make any silly mistakes because I, I can't, it can't be a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? To say, well, I don't think there's any deer. So I'm going to bump deer out of here. And then it's, I, I knew it was this way and I'm going to leave, right? I'm happy to be out here. I want to be out here. So um, that, that next day is when I started coming around and, and uh, it's before the sun came up and I see something kind of moving over, over on one side. And so I, I dump my pack and sit down kind of on a steep hill and it's a doe. She's she's walking down what I now see to be a trail kind of off in the distance up up against the chaparral. And she's got me pegged. And so I'm not moving. I'm just trying to confirm that that it is a doe and it is a doe it's before shoot light. And she keeps looking back. And so I'm looking at her going, okay, that's a doe. I'm not 
they're not doing uh, antlerless tags in, in California during this season. Um, but she keeps looking back. And so I go, I feel like something's following her or she's with a group. I wonder what's going on over here. So now I know that that's kind of the area that I want to be in because I'm, I'm, she's giving me the signs that there's more to the story over here. And so I wait until she kind of moves off. So I don't spook her. I get my gear back up and I start moving in that direction. And I don't think I, I went maybe 150 yards and I, I busted two bucks from like 20 yards. They're just kind of in the briars next to me. They jump, they run across, across the cow trail, they climb the hill and they're, they're uh, up behind a, an oak tree. And uh, I dump my pack and get on my glass and they're, I don't know, 130 yards away or so. And one is definitely legal. Now, barely, it's a little, little tiny fork and horn, maybe, maybe a two or three inch spike on, on at least one side, but I know one of them is legal. So I get my, my uh, rifle up and I'm trying to check, but they're kind of doing this funny leapfrog thing. And I can't confirm, maybe they're, maybe they were both legal. I'm not sure, but I couldn't confirm which one I knew to be legal. And I'm wanting to make something happen. Um, but I, it's not, it's not happening, right? I'm not going to force it. And so they kind of move on and they're working their way up into the chaparral. And so I kind of stop and go, okay, like this, this isn't the time. They're not gone forever. I, there's at least one legal buck in here. I finally got some confirmation right after a couple of days of just not seeing anything at all, but slowly uh, reducing my my search pattern, right? Bring, bringing it in as tight as I can. I know that they're going to be in this area and I don't want to bust them out of here and then them be, there be somewhere where I had already kind of cleared as not being a viable option. So instead of giving chase, what I decide to do is keep with the plan I had before and go to that spot that I wanted to sit down and, and kind of watch over the top of this meadow. Now, Steve, I, or I keep calling you Steve. I'm sorry. Uh, Mark, I, I've heard you and Steve kind of talk about um, when animals stand up and when they move, right? And this is something that I haven't heard you say exactly, but I but I think it's kind of in that realm and I, and I bet you've done this before. So it's a hot morning. What I did is I got behind... Um, some manzanita, there's shrubs down there. I'm up on this high point and I back up all the way until my back is right at the line of the shade. Okay. And I know as the sun comes over the, uh, over the horizon that I have a big shady spot in front of me, but that shade is going to close in on me. And at some point I will be sitting in the sun again. Right. So there's this big, uh, shady gap. And I sat there glassing until the sun runs into me. Because my thought is if I push those deer and they lay down somewhere, they're going to lay in the shadiest spot they can. And at some point that sun is going to hit them. They're going to stand up. Well, it's it's almost like I'm setting my timer, right? I'm going to do the same thing they're doing. I know they just moved and laid down. So I sit on the edge. I wait until the sun touches me and I stand up. And when I stand up, I turn around and I'm glassing kind of in the area that they were. And I see that buck moving. He stood up the moment that I stood up and he's at 265 yards or something. So uh, I was able to range him 265 yards. And uh, I, I, I've been doing this thing that I having a lot of success with, with Onyx because now they do that, that radius tool. Um, have you used that radius tool before Mark? Yeah. Yeah. I have. Okay. So 
here's how I used it. I, I used it for this hunt and it was successful, but I've been using it uh, in the last I don't know, year or so pretty regularly. So I pull up my glass and I range him 265. I press the, I open up Onyx. I press that button where, you know, if you point your phone in that direction, it, it does the heading for you. Mm-hmm. So I do the heading towards it. I do a radius to 265. So I bring it out like that. And then I mark a spot. So I go, here's the radius of how far away it is. And I know that's going right there. Uh, or the, the, the deer is right here and he is headed in this heading. So then I make a line on the, on the edge of that circle where I believe him to go. And I scroll over there and kind of look at the topography and I go, I think I can get in front of him. I, I know how far out, even if he stays the same distance away from me, he's going to be at least this far away. So I backed off and I beat feet. I, I ran 700 yards over the hill, kind of around the back. And I tried to get as far in front of him as I could. And I ran up the side of this, um, this the east side of the basin and tried to be where they're going, right? Um, and so I got to a spot which was good for me, a, a tree cover and uh, some some good open ground. And I set up my tripod and get my gun on the tripod. And I'm ready if they come through. And maybe two or three minutes goes by. And have you ever had that feeling you go, this is a good setup to shoot only if they walk by and I don't think they're going to walk by. So I, I got that feeling. And I went, I don't, I don't think this is it. I think I need to move up because maybe 50 yards ahead of me was a dry creek bed, bunch of rocks and kind of overgrown and I went, I don't, I don't think they're going to cross that unless they have to. So maybe I need to get to that and I might see them run into that barrier and either find a natural crossing point or kind of work their way down using that as a barrier. But I knew they were in the vicinity because I saw them earlier. And so I have my pack on, but unclipped. I have my tripod extended to stand and I'm carrying my tripod with my, with my rifle um, uh, attached to it right? And I'm kind of working my way through chest high uh, Manzanita to get close to the to the riverbed. And I, I almost want to cross it and get on their side. Well, I get into it and I'm in the rocks, a bunch of river rocks, and I'm kind of up on the on a high side right there. And I, I get through the chest high stuff. I kind of get out into the clearing and there's a deer at 80 yards with a a big um, granite backstop, right? There's a big, big boulder behind it. And it's like, broadside stopped, but sees me. And it's, it's that doe from earlier. And so I, I open up my tripod because I already had it set up and my, my height's already set. And so I get on the gun and she sees me and looks back behind her again. And I go, she's doing that thing again, where she's looking behind her. I think there's another deer. So she doesn't spook really, but she jumps off, crosses the riverbed, uh, goes off to my right up into the chaparral. I, I, I can hear her moving, but I can't see her. She's gone. And so I go, okay, I think there's another deer and it's going to follow that same exact path as my guess. Well, I see some movement and there's a uh, there's that big granite face of a, of a boulder. And then to the left of that boulder is a big, thick manzanita bush as, as tall as I am. And I see some antler tips on the other side of that. And it's kind of moving around and the, the mule deer here have real chocolate antlers. And so it's not like that stark white, like in the white tail woods. Right. So I see something, I go, it looks like branches, but I think those are antlers. I get on my glass and hundred percent, that is a legal buck. I can tell it's the only deer there, but it's com- all of its vitals are completely covered. I can see maybe it's half of its eyes and it's antlers. And it kind of knows something's over here because 
the the doe it was walking with had already spooked off. So I see my opportunity there to say, I got about two steps. It's probably not going to give me a big shot opportunity. What it's probably going to do is when it feels like it needs to leave, it's going to run that same path that that doe did. But I got to see the doe go through there. So I have an idea of how that, that deer will, will pass that rock face, right? So I get on the gun and I, I, Mark, I, I'm not joking with you. Uh, I, I was on the gun for six minutes, right? Just dumping sweat out in the sun, standing on the tripod, waiting for it. And that thing thought about it and thought about it and gave me ear twitches and moved back and forth. And it started to run. It, when, when it went off, it went step, step. And it it's like it's like it stepped on a landmine. I, it, the, I, I'm shooting a 6'5", 80 yards. And I, I've been shooting that gun religiously. And I, it's like an extension of my arm. And that thing stepped out and it just felt perfect got got the good reverb uh and i and it sounded like a good hit it felt like a good hit and it finished its way across um the the riverbed and was gone i didn't see it so i know it's probably taken that same path and so what i did at that point even though i'm amped right i don't get i'm getting the shakes because i'm excited i'm out here in the middle of nowhere and just uh uh had a successful shot on a, on a buck and it's feeling great i did the same thing I pull out my onyx I take a, a, a heading and I and I uh, range it it's eighty I don't know eighty four yards or something like that, and um, I do the radius and I mark a point because I know I can't go A to B to get to it when it's time. I'm going to have to go through the riverbed in a different direction, and sometimes the you don't have those landmarks when you get close to it. You know that, right? And so um, I was able to use that. I walked down through the riverbed, came up the other side, get over to an area that looked way different from that side. I found a big rock face and I just see blood splatter all in the right spots. And I start to see a blood trail. And I, I think that thing went maybe 40 yards. If that, it made it down the riverbed up the other side. And I was tracking blood so much that, uh, and it, they blend so well that I was tracking blood, looking, looking, and I see blood in the last spot and I'm looking ahead and going, man, I don't see any blood. I think I lost it. And I kicked it. I, I actually like ran, physically ran into it. Um, uh, instead of seeing blood there, it blends in so well, but it, without that kind of protocol that, that I took to make sure that I'm not only shooting something, but I'm, I have a repeatable way of tracking it and finding it to the best of my ability. I don't know if I would have found it even there. It's just thick chaparral and everything blends in. And so, uh, I, I, again, as a weekend warrior, I, I, I don't, I don't get to come back there and, and, and search and search and search. I, I need to find it right that second, um, or, or soon after. And the longer I'm looking for it, the more likely, um, that the heat's going to take control. So. Good stuff you shared in there. I'm sure that, uh, some listeners are definitely picking up some tips on just ways to use Onyx or think through, you know, a both approach to a shot opportunity as well as what ended up being a recovery as well. Man, I, this time has flown by. I like keep wanting to dive into other stuff, but, um, yeah, aside from any takeaways you want to add, we'll wrap it here. Um, again, there's some great topics we could dive into, but I, I know you're at work and we can't, we can't keep you all day. What's, um, is there anything, you know, that you would want to make sure we hit or cover or share before we do wrap it up? So, yeah, just, just one quick thing. And, and, um, that really is knowing your weapon system and I'll, I'll be brief with this, but so I have a, I have a good friend uh, named Ogden that we do a lot of training with. I, I can't speak, um, 
highly enough of um, international tactical training seminars in LA. Uh, it's run by active duty LEPD SWAT. Uh, and I talk about high level instruction that the guy who taught my uh, handgun class uh, was SWAT operator of the year for their 50th anniversary. Uh, the guy who taught my sniper class was SWAT sniper of the year uh, in the same year. And so just world-class instruction, but it's interesting how similar what they're doing in those uh, long range precision classes, how similar that is to what uh, I've heard uh, from Chris w way about uh, rifle craft. And so I think if, if anyone's listening, if, if you have a hard time getting to a long range range, or you don't, don't get a chance to, to shoot your rifle as much as, as you would like. Um, I have seen huge gains in my personal accuracy shooting um, the, the rifle craft it's standing, kneeling, sitting prone. Um, and you rebuild your setup every single time, every single shot, you do three rounds of that. You're shooting at hundred yards. You're trying to get that group closer and closer. And in the, the times that I practiced that I went from, I don't know, 15 plus, I think I'm down to like 8.33. And why I think that's important is you get to use your own setup, right? So you learn things about, Hey, when I shoot standing from a tripod, uh, I, uh, err to the right or whatever the case may be. And so I don't, I don't use like standard, um, uh, PRS equipment to do that. I'm shooting my hunting rifle off of my tripod or my, whatever I I'm using stuff that I, or my pack, I'm using stuff that I would shoot in the field. So when you get that opportunity in the moment, in the back of your head, you're not second guessing. I don't know. I've never shot that far from a standing position before. Or, I don't know what it's going to do here. Or what does the recoil feel like if I'm on one knee, you're able to practice that. And so um, I was doing the rifle craft based, based on recommendations from this podcast beforehand, me and Ogden were, and going into advanced precision rifle with ITTS, I just smoked everybody because, and, and not because I'm a way better shot or anything. It's because I've been practicing that thing that is hard to practice. Right. And so I feel like because of that in the last year, I I've shot, um, uh, wild boar on the run, um, shots that I, that I feel ultra confident on now, uh, being able to, to, operationalize that training. And that that's not always the case. And so I just, I, I just want to part with that and say that uh, if, if people haven't dug into that, uh, that has been such a huge help to practice in a way in my limited time and my, in my uh, home range that I'm able to, to shoot out here locally um, to do something that has strong positive effects for your few days in the field that you get. Awesome. Great stuff, man. So much good uh, in here, Cameron. I appreciate you uh, reaching out to share not only the hunt story, but just breaking down some really helpful lessons. It's it's so good for me to have you know the opportunity to speak with the experts and all that. But a lot of times, it's good to know because I still consider myself like one of you, like just regular hunter. But it's good to know, like especially for someone like yourself who's listened to the podcast, who's gone through you know, this hunting journey, like what sticks and what has made a difference and all that. And you've really helped highlight some of that today. So thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you for what you're doing. And again, I, it, you, you're, you have saved me so much time and money and added confidence uh, to, to my, my hunting skills that I just can't thank you enough for. And so I appreciate you uh, responding when I reached out, but it, it all comes from a, a place of, of great gratitude because 
my my family is is eating well uh, based on your your uh, thoughtful recommendations and and I just think you do such a good job of of pulling out the things that are the most advantageous for folks like me who are trying to make it work when they can. So thank you. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation as I did. And Cameron, thank you for joining us and sharing the story and experience with us. Listeners, if you have something to share, whether that's a question, a topic suggestion, a guest suggestion, or maybe a story of your own, send an email to podcast at exomountaingear.com. You can also look for the link in the show description of this episode that says, leave us a message and you can leave us an audio message on whatever device you are using, and we will answer that on a future Monday Minute episode. Finally, if you haven't yet, be sure to hit subscribe or follow in your podcast app so that you receive future episodes automatically, and we'll talk to you soon.